believe us, there won't be any June swoon with this podcast. Hello again, this is Adashina Koiki, and welcome once again to the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. This is episode number five and our first episode in the month of June, and we have a whole lot of insight for you in this podcast. We talk with our horse racing expert, Michael A. Rowley, of course, this weekend, the Belmont Stakes at Belmont Park in New York, California Chrome, a chance to become the first horse since 1978 to win the holy grail in thoroughbred racing the triple crown so we talk with our horse racing expert who has contributed so many insightful stories to our website a lot of sportstalk.com so we talk with michael riley we talk about the chances for california chrome whether he is surprised and was surprised at the performance by california chrome who was tabbed at the very beginning of this triple crown season as the horse to beat and he has not disappointed so far a chance to complete the triple crown on saturday but first we talk with mike lynch sports reporter formerly of espn the magazine and now reporting for sportsreference.com the popular stats database he comes on our show to break down the 2014 nba finals the rematch between the san antonio spurs and the miami heat miami winning last year in seven games so mike comes on breaks down the spurs breaks down the miami heat and we do hope in a later edition of this podcast that'll come out in a couple of days we hope to have becky hammond seven-time wnba all-star she also will talk a little bit about spurs and heat and also talk about her 16th WNBA season it might be her last and one of the best players to ever play in the WNBA hopefully we will have her on the show in a later edition of this podcast but until then enjoy our podcast greatness that may become immortals this week and this weekend our conversation with Michael A. Riley about the triple crown but first Spurs and Heat with Mike Lynch we will see you at the very end of the show Continuing our talk about the 2014 NBA Finals between the Miami Heat and San Antonio Spurs and also talking about other topics in the National Basketball Association, we bring in our sports reporter, formerly of ESPN the Magazine, and now with the very popular stats database sportsreference.com, Mike Lynch joins us to talk about all things NBA. And first of all, Mike, thank you so very much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Um, thank you for uh, having me on. It's uh, like good to uh, catch up with you. Yeah, it's it's been a little while uh, since we got to catch up, and it's very fun and good to have you with us. Uh, first question, before we look forward to the 2014 NBA Finals, looking back to the 2013 NBA Finals and what most people remember uh, about that Finals between these two teams, is Game 6 and the game-winning three by Ray Allen after the uh, rebound uh, by Chris Bosh. Tim Duncan wasn't on the floor uh, late in that game for a couple of possessions, and it seemed to burn them on that possession. Uh, a lot of people say that the Spurs blew that series and blew a chance at the championship. Uh, do you believe that's the case last year? Uh, I don't know. I guess you would would have to think, you know, when you kind of have it in, in like the palm of your hands like that, I guess um, that would have to kind of be true. You know, blows maybe... Um, a tough word to use there, um, but um, 
I'm sure that they must have felt that way. You know, I, I, I can't imagine being that close. And then, you know, they obviously had their chances. Even in the uh, seventh game, you know, the uh, frustrated slap to the floor by, like, Duncan after he missed that, like, gimme in the putback late in the seventh game, uh, you know, it was the final minute, like, down two points. And, you know, I'm sure that's a shot he's hit a million times as well. Um, I don't know if I would be one to say that they blew it because I have a lot of respect for that team, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they feel themselves like they blew it. Um, how much do you think motivation plays in this series? We, we've heard it a lot in the past couple of days about Duncan being motivated and Chris Bosh using Duncan's words to motivate himself. Um, it's become a little bit on we, but the Spurs' motivation to win given last year, how much of a factor, if any, does that play as this series gets started? Uh, you know what? Every year for the last, like, like five years plus, it, it, it has always kind of felt like this might be the last go around for the Spurs, and you know that there's a real sense of urgency this time. You know, um, there's not much gas left in the tank, so to speak. But um, I think, you know, and I'm probably someone that has said this every year for all of these, but um, the clock really is like ticking at this point. I mean. Uh, it's unbelievable what a high level Duncan has continued to play at, you know, like well into his like late thirties at this point. Um, and there's really no to start, uh, precedent for anyone maintaining this high level of play this deep into their career, really. I mean, uh, by this point, a Kareem, you know, was still putting up numbers, but he was not carrying the Lakers and, and that's not to say that, that like Duncan carries this Spurs team but I think he's still clearly like the most important piece on on that team um, and they are well balanced obviously um, Ginobili is now into his mid-30s and a shooting guard is not going to age that well and uh, Parker seems to be almost chronically hurt at this point um Kawhi Leonard, you know, they're, they're going to get into, um, you know, like becoming his team pretty soon, you would think. And, um, and while he's a very nice player, I don't know if he's the kind of guy that you build a championship contender around just yet. Um, so I, I think these guys have really got to be sensing, uh, you know, this may be their last best shot. Um, it would be almost like shocking to ever see the big three of Parker, Duncan, and Ginobili ever get back to the finals as um, the three most important players on a team or, you know, three of the four most important if you want to throw, like, Leonard in there. Yeah, once again, talking with Mike Lynch, sports reporter of sport, at sportsreference.com. Uh, uh, you mentioned one of the big three, Manu Ginobili. Uh, at this time last year and during that series and at the end of the series, it seemed as if he was out of gas. And now in the last game against Oklahoma City in that clincher, he had to 
play point guard, pseudo point guard, uh, when Tony Parker was out and had a great uh, game in that series clincher, 15 points, six rebounds, five assists, four steals. He's had a pretty good postseason. Uh, is the biggest difference for the Spurs going into this series against the Heat, uh, the Ginobili of 2013 who seemed to have hit a wall compared to this year's Manu Ginobili who seems to have a whole lot more left in the tank? Yeah, you know, it's uh, funny. Um, I, you know, like sort of like everyone else, I remember his kind of uh, epic struggles in the finals last year, and I've heard a lot of talk about, um, you know, a big difference for the Spurs this year is that, like, Ginobili is playing well this year. He wasn't playing well last year. Um, and I kind of had a like different memory of it. I feel like he was having um a very productive playoffs last year and then sort of you know, maybe ran into a wall versus the heat or, you know, just ran into guys that were just athletically younger with like better legs, all that. Um and but uh, you you know, it you watch like so many games and it's hard to keep track of what was what when and uh, actually, earlier in the day, I was, you know, like sort of like revisiting how he was playing heading into last year's finals. And um, he was actually, you know, scoring was down a little compared to this year, but his rebounds and his assists were up. Um, the massive change is that he was shooting in the, I don't, you know, something like 28 or 29% from three heading into the finals last year. This year, he's up in the high 30s, which um, obviously that's a massive difference, especially when you're talking about threes. Um, you know, shooting 29%, you're kind of hurting your team. And uh, if you're a volume, like uh, a three guy, and you're hitting in the high 30s, that's uh, big time. Um, and, you know, you, you can like certainly point to some games in, in these playoffs that um, he's almost one for the Spurs with his three-point shooting. Um, if I recall correctly, actually, one of his best games shooting threes, I think, was one of those losses in uh, OKC in, in like that last series. But um, it really opens things up for him and for the team. Uh, when he's hitting threes, I think it allows them to play uh, some lineups that could really cause some problems for... Miami, if you think about if they can put Parker, Ginobili, Leonard, Boris, and Duncan out there, um, on paper it seems a little light on shooting. But if Ginobili can be consistently hitting the threes, you know, if you can get Kawhi going in the corner, and if, uh, like, Boris can keep the opposing four honest, um, then that you know you've 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 got five guys that can make a play for themselves or for someone else with the ball in their hand. That's a really dynamic five. Um, but it's not going to work if there's not guys out there hitting threes. Then you've got to put the Danny Greens of the world into the game. And uh, I mean, his three point shooting has been unbelievable, but he's a very limited offensive player. Um, aside from that, and uh, you know you can almost just stick a guy on him that'll watch him at the three-point line and uh, let it be done there. Um, but that other five, I mean, that's there's not many teams that can put out five guys that are that skilled. 
Once again, talking with Mike Lynch of SportsReference.com. Now going to shift over to the Heat. And that was a very uh, interesting observation that you had that maybe the Spurs' best five against the Heat does not include Danny Green, especially given the fact that a lot of people remember uh, Danny Green going absolutely off in the finals last year and uh, started to uh, uh, hit his stride uh, with his shooting later on in the NBA playoffs uh, this year. I want to move to the Heat for a little bit. Uh, LeBron James, of course, he's the straw that stirs the drink. I don't think a lot of people think that LeBron has had the playoffs that he usually has because he has not had the 50-point game, the 60-point game that he had in Cleveland and earlier on in his time with the Heat. Assess LeBron James's play in the playoffs this season compared to some of the other seasons that he's had in the playoffs with Miami. Do you think he's uh, better? Do you think he's leveling off? And leveling off LeBron James isn't bad at all. Just assess his playoffs this season compared to his other playoff seasons with the Heat. Well, I think it's been pretty pathetic uh, because he missed that foul shot <laughs> against the Nets. Uh, to, <laughs> to get 50, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had, had he hit that, we'd be talking about the 50-point game and, you know, what a brilliant run. Um, I, it, it's, uh, I hear what you're saying and a lot of, uh, you know, the numbers and some of the performances look... Um, bad compared to the insane standard that he set. Um, part of it is that, um, you know, I I can't go back to the BAA days or, you know, stuff like that. But I, at least in my lifetime and in any sort of recent history, I cannot recall a weaker conference uh, than what the East was this year. And um, I don't know that the Heat ever really got pushed to a point um, where LeBron felt it necessary or really had to go into that, um, you know, like Terminator mode that he can go into. I think the closest thing we saw to it was probably that game versus the Nets. I think, you know, there's definitely some players on that team that can get under his skin. Um, and uh, I think they brought out the best in him. At, I believe that that game was immediately after a loss, if I recall correctly. I think it was game four in Brooklyn uh, after that series had made two to one. And, you know, um, that's, if you're looking for a, like, back against the wall moment, you know, I mean, I'm I'm sure they didn't want to be in a two to two series. I know they went down one nothing to the Pacers as well. Um, And I thought he had some very strong performances there. Um, People may point to, you know, one horrible uh, performance that he had against Indiana. I would attribute that to a series of embarrassing calls, uh, specifically by uh, Ed Malloy, more than anything else. I mean, he he actually came out and, like, dominated the first couple minutes. I remember he had, like, a ridiculous alley-oop. He seemed like he was really fired up. And into the game, and then all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, he's got a pair of fouls. He's got to sit down, and I mean, where did he pick up his fifth foul uh, early in the third quarter, or something preposterous? Um, I, he, he just never had a chance to get into the flow of that game, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. But um, the doubt still has to kind of be there um, in that we haven't really seen him go completely nuts yet in these playoffs 
perhaps the situation hasn't required it yet. Um, but is he hiding some sort of uh, injury right now? I, I'm like, not saying that he is, I, um, but I mean, few athletes have more mileage on them o- o- over the last uh, like decade, and specifically over the last uh, four years here um, that he's got. But he always appears to be superhuman as well. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, going back to the BAA days. Um, I know the uh, Toronto Huskies are not in the NBA, uh, yes. but <laughs> we have the Raptors. Huskies not the- <laughs> Knickerbockers first game, right? Eh? <laughs> hey, hey, I think you were there. <laughs> I do have the gray hairs to show for it on my beard, so uh, I might have <laughs> been. If it was, yeah, I was at Maple Leaf Gardens. Maybe it wasn't. I missed a left turn in Toronto. But I do want to ask you, uh, you mentioned the conference and the Eastern Conference being as weak as any possible conference has been in any of our lifetimes. Um, how much does that hurt the Heat going into this series, if it does at all? You know, uh, it, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not honestly sure if I could tell you if it's a good thing for them or if it's a bad thing for them. Uh, that, you know, there's obviously ways you could look at it that, you know, hey, um, they're not nearly... Yeah, you know, like they haven't had to push themselves nearly as much as they would have to come out through the West. Where I mean, I, I, in my opinion, I don't think a single Eastern Conference team besides the Heat would have even won a first round series in the West this year. I, I think um, you know you could easily argue that eight of the nine best teams uh, at least uh, came out of the West. And I'll say that. Um, you know, only because of what happened to the Pacers in the second half of the season. Like, Pacers were clearly up there first half of the year, but um, something strange happened there. Um, I feel like, uh, I feel like it's probably kind of good for the Heat because I think that Dwayne Wade is in a pretty good place at the moment um, where he was really beat up last year. If they really had to like go through some wars just to get to the finals. I'm I'm not sure what kind of condition Wade would be in. Um, you know that Bosch, if he had to go against um, some front lines that blended size with skill throughout these playoffs, especially with Birdman getting injured, missing a couple games in the in 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 in, in that last round. Um, Haslam seems like a guy. That they've lost a great deal of like confidence in at like this point in his career. Um, I, I I think that they're probably better off uh, taking the quote unquote easy finals berth, um, where you know they'll they'll really only have to beat one great team uh, to win this title. Whereas the Spurs, um, you know, they've They've been through a lot just to get here. Um, fortunately for them, they're coming into this thing pretty healthy. Uh, but you know, we're not really sure what kind of condition Parker's in at at this point. I mean, he's been in and out of the lineup for months now. Uh, you know, maybe Duncan had to play a couple more minutes than they would have liked with that last game going overtime. Um, You'd, you'd have to think that the Heat are doing better physically right now, although uh, the Spurs are certainly more well uh, acclimated to 
playing against great opponents right now. Yeah. Uh, again, talking with Mike Lynch of SportsReference.com. If Greg Popovich and the Spurs win uh, the NBA title, uh, he's going to have five NBA titles. Greg Popovich, he is already in the list, short list of one of the greatest uh, head coaches in NBA history. Then on the other sideline, you have Eric Spolstra. Four NBA Finals. He may win a third in a row. Um, Eric Spolstra, your thoughts about him as a coach, maybe. Uh, what has he done with this Heat squad, if anything? I guess a lot of people would say that he's almost in a position where uh, he has the keys to a Ferrari, just doesn't have to crash it. But just assess Eric Spolstra. Does he not get the credit that he should deserve? Uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly, um, it would probably be easy for a lot of people to just like dismiss, um, what he's like gotten done there. Um, you know, I'm sure he was kind of on a bit of thin ice, uh, after the loss in the first year. Um, and that, that certainly got to be like difficult, uh, working conditions where like the expectation Every single year is that, um, you know, if if like we don't win at all, uh, the season's going to be a, a failure. And um, I mean, it, he certainly has gotten results. Um, he's really changed some things. Learn from you know, if like you want to call them the mistakes from the first year, uh, they've been better about not repeating them. Uh, the offense has really been uh, humming for the last uh, few years here. Uh, you see a lot less of, you know, that awkward dance that we would get uh, when LeBron and Wade shared the floor early on um, where no one was really sure what their job was. Um, things have really kind of fallen into place there. Um, you know, the spacing that you get from a Ray Allen, like going more to small ball, uh, where they can space the floor with shooters everywhere. Um, and obviously they've played, um, now their defense did fall off, uh, quite a bit like this season, but, um, for the most part, you know, you know that when it matters that this heat team is going to play great defense. Um, and it, that's 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 one of those things that to me is a sign of like great coaching. Um, you know, you, your team isn't going to play great defense by uh, accident. Um, you know, like players can make a great offense at at uh, times, but um, it like takes like five guys playing with each other um, to really play tremendous defense and uh, you know to like win titles as well. Um, you know, Phil Jackson. He's a, another guy, you know, a, a lot of people are like, uh, you know, uh, anyone could have won titles with those teams, um, but no one else did. Um, you know, uh, the Lakers weren't getting it done under Del Harris, and the Bulls weren't winning titles under uh, Collins. Um, so you just got to give credit. So two teams make the NBA Finals. Of course, 14 teams that made it into the NBA playoffs did not make the NBA Finals. And I just wanted to ask you, uh, which of those 14 teams that did make the playoffs but did not make the Finals have the biggest question mark in terms of either 
holes to fill or in terms of meeting expectations that are going to be heaped on them going into next season? Uh, which team has the biggest question mark to fill or may have the most expectations or the most to prove going into the 2014-2015 season? Um, you know, I guess um, at like this point in the year, there's probably... Uh, what 28 teams scratching their heads, I guess. Um, to me, the most intriguing slash crazy situation out there at the moment is what's going on in Memphis. Um, I I really think that that team, uh, you know, and a first round playoff loss is not going to look good. But um, the conference that it was in, uh, you know, they're missing Marcus All for months during the season, which uh, artificially suppress their seed um you know this team went punch for punch with a like thunder team that um you know that really could be playing in the yeah, finals uh probably with some better coaching uh you know like whatever but um you know like memphis was right there and then conley gets hurt uh, you know they're probably like their best scorer is, is uh, suspended for the game, and uh, you know, like things just don't go their way. Now, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the guy who's running like basketball operations is gone. His assistant is gone, um, and you know, they've like reinstalled like Chris Wallace as like the GM. All of a sudden, I mean, we're talking about a team uh, with window to compete for titles, and they're in chaos right now. There's the whole weird situation with like Dave Yeager, um, you know, rumors that the uh, owner wanted him fired. He gives him like permission to go interview with the wolves. And then he, uh, it's, I don't know if they wanted to keep him. Why did they have him go up there? Um, just a very, very strange situation. Let me stop you and right they, there. Uh, quick. My apologies. Let me stop you real quick. Um, you sure. mentioned that the Grizz, that the thunder, could have been playing in the NBA Finals with better coaching. Uh, does that mean that Scott Brooks is also one of those people that has a lot of pressure on him uh, going into next season? Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, it <laughs> the like funny thing to me is if I were running the Grizzlies, I would be incredibly happy with the job that Yeager did this season, winning 50 games uh, with a team with injuries all over the place, um, and you know was struck again with like bad luck and uh, hurt players in, in a uh, playoff series. And meanwhile, I'm running uh, OKC. I'm wondering what in God's name Scott Brooks is like doing sometimes. I mean, uh, giving Derek Fisher, what, 33 minutes in that last <laughs> game. I mean, I, you know, he's getting posted up by Tim Duncan down the stretch. I mean, woof. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I, there's like intangibles. I guess you went on the floor for 33 minutes, right? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> um, I, yeah, to me, Scott Brooks, um, and, you know, I like go back to, I grew up a Sixers fan, and Scotty Brooks was the guy that came in off the bench and played really hard, and everyone, you know, like loved those uh, five or ten minutes he played. And we're talking about an era where, teams had maybe two or three guys on the whole roster that were allowed to shoot maybe one or two threes a game. And he was one of our guys, you know, we'd 
Bob Scott Brooks come in with the mullet and launch some threes and get some floor burns, and we all love them. But uh, I think he's a little overwhelmed um, as a uh, coach. Um, again, you know, that's the kind of situation where it's like if someone were to take over that team and win titles, we might all say, well, uh, anyone can win with a team like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, well, you know. Brooks just uh, hasn't gotten it done. Hmm. Uh, we can't thank you enough, Mike Lynch, for joining us uh, to provide insight on the NBA, the NBA Finals. And I guess my one last question uh, to sign off, um, pro or con with Lance Stevenson and all of his antics and all of his play? I know there's been a lot of talk, and I know you've been a little bit vocal about Lance Stevenson, so share your thoughts uh, really quickly on um, on Lance Stevenson. The NBA is a better place with Lance Stevenson in it. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, I don't necessarily know if I would want him on my team, um, but I'm glad that he is in the association. <laughs> NBA better off with Lance Stevenson. He might be the next uh, logo in the league, maybe. <laughs> From Jerry West to a silhouette of he blowing. <laughs> All right, <laughs> oh man, that Mike, would work. That th- would work, wouldn't it? Uh, Mike Lynch, we can't thank you enough for joining us once again. The NBA Finals beginning on Thursday in San Antonio, the San Antonio Spurs and the Miami Heat. Mike Lynch of SportsReference.com, formerly of ESPN the magazine. Uh, Mike, it's been a pleasure catching up with you, and we will definitely talk with you down the road. Thanks for joining us. Great to chat with you, uh, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Enjoy the finals. We are pleased to be joined live at Madison Square Garden by seven-time WNBA All-Star Becky Hammond. And as you can tell and hear, we're in the Stars locker room after a big victory over the Liberty. And Becky, thank you so very much for joining us. How does a victory on the road feel? Anytime you win on the road, it feels good. Um, I felt like there was a lot of energy in the garden tonight. Um, I miss New York. You know, I miss the energy. I miss the hustle. And so it was nice to get back in the garden. You know, we've been away for a while. Um, So it was... Just a pleasure to be out back on the court, on that court specifically. <laughs> uh, talk more about being back in New York City, being back on Mad- in Madison Square Garden. So many great memories uh, that you had. It just never gets old coming back to New York, right? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, New York's uh, it's an amazing city. It's an amazing city to be a professional athlete in. Um, you know, it's uh, the garden looks a little different than when I was there, um, but it still has that same magical feel to it. So I thought that was pretty cool that... Uh, they definitely did some upgrades, um, but they didn't lose the magic and all it. So uh, that was that was pretty cool. Uh, last season, uh, your season just never got going. Had the f- finger injury, yeah. then had the uh, uh, ACL tear. How is your uh, body holding up? How's your knee holding up? Um, the knee is holding up well. Uh, you know, I got some nagging little injuries here and there, but uh, overall, I'm feeling very good. Um, every week, I get back a little bit quicker, a little bit sharper. Um, you know, because it'd been over a year, you know, since I had played at that level with that kind of speed and intensity. So um, it, I'm still a process. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of working my way back in, not forcing anything, just kind of taking what uh, comes to me and uh, riding the coattails of these young bucks for a little bit. <laughs> How's it feel riding the uh, quote-unquote coattails of these young bucks? <laughs> I'm okay with that. Let them them young legs do a lot of work. Um, but we have a really, you know, tight group and a uh, good group of girls. So we play together. 
um, and I think that's the most important thing. I think that's the way basketball should be played. Again, joined by Becky Hammond, seven-time NBA WNBA All-Star. I'm going to shift to the NBA a little bit. And uh, last season, when you were recovering from uh, your injury, uh, you spent a lot of time with Coach Popovich and the Spurs coaching staff. Just how did that relationship get started? Um, it actually got started on a plane ride back from the Olympics in 2012. Uh, we sat next to each other, uh, me and Coach Pop, and uh, we started talking. But he had watched our games, come to our games, and, um, you know, kind of knows my story. And uh, it was just an intriguing um, thing for me to be there in the off season and um, for him to let me in. I mean, it's, it's really sacred ground for them to let somebody in, especially a girl. Um, you know, and, and I was just really appreciative that they let me sit in there and just learn from them and um, loved going through film sessions with them and just seeing how the other side operates. It was a, a great, great experience. Um, what did you learn the most from Coach Popovich and that staff, if you could learn anything from them given all of your basketball experience? I mean, you, obviously there's a lot of basketball, uh, you know, to be learned. He's, he's great at drawing up plays, calling plays at certain times. Um, he's a master of rotating his bench and getting the most out of people I think that's the artful thing that he really does is um, you know get everybody involved and get the best out of everybody um, and the way he leads I learned a lot about uh, just his style of coaching um, his honesty you know with the players um, and the respect you know the mutual respect that they have for each other and that was really cool to watch um, kind of him interact with them and uh, you know, the, the, a lot of those guys, you know, him and Timmy especially, they've been together forever down there. So it was, it was, it was just fun to sit back and kind of study uh, those relationships. Uh, was there a time or two where you and Coach Pop and the coaching staff weren't necessarily on the same page? Um, I would sit in with their film sessions, and, he, you know, he would ask me my opinion, and I would give it. I don't know. <laughs> um, he always likes open dialogue, and I think that's really cool. Um, coming from somebody who knows so much, he still wants other people's input. And... Um, that's you know I think that's kind of the magical part of it is you know he hires capable people and lets everybody do a part speaking of input uh give us your input on the Spurs and Heat series what are the, the couple of keys or things that you'll be looking out for and or what the Spurs need to do to uh, exact revenge from last year against Miami well I, obviously I think the home court advantage is is going to be huge um you know, you look back at games six and seven, and, um, you know, that home court definitely came into play. Uh, the other thing is I, I think our bench improved from last year. Um, he's got a lot of confidence in those bench guys. Um, and I just think defensively you have to handle their pressure and still keep your ball movement and player movement. I think if they do those things, I know they got guys that will knock down shots and are used to playing in big moments, and they're hungry. So I think it's a great combination. Uh, talk about your uh, coaching aspirations, I guess, even before uh, you got to meet up with Coach Popovich back uh, in 2012 and compare it to now. You had, had you always wanted to get into the coaching ranks, and then how did that uh, accentuate uh, and intensify after uh, your time with the Spurs coaching staff? Um, you know, I was really open to kind of what I wanted to do afterwards, whether it be TV or um, or the coaching thing. I love people. I love basketball. So it's a very natural marriage. And then that opportunity just kind of uh, just gave me a little bit of a fire to, to keep learning and keep, uh, you know, keep my nose to the ground. You can always learn more. And so I think coaching uh, kind of lit a fire in me. I liked I liked the, the player-coach relationship. I liked being part of a team. And uh, Coach Pop and the whole coaching staff really made me feel like a part of, of the coaching staff. So that was really cool. And, um, 
So I, it definitely lit a fire under me for on, on the coaching bug. I hope this interview didn't scare you away from the TV and communications uh, possibilities uh, for you. Um, prediction on the series, if you uh, want to predict the Spurs and Heat series. I predict the Spurs win. I'm not sure in how many games. I hope in six. I don't like game sevens with uh, LeBron on the other side of the ball. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Becky Hammond, thank you so very much for joining us, and best of luck to you for the rest of this season and going forward in your post-basketball career whenever that may start. All right. Thank you very much. On Saturday, the 36-year wait may end. The 2014 Belmont Stakes to be run at Belmont Park in New York. And California Chrome, of course, has the chance to become the first horse since affirmed in 1978 to win the Triple Crown Horse Racing's Holy Grail. And, of course, Victor Espinosa, the jockey, has a chance to become the first jockey uh, since Steve Cawthon, who was aboard, affirmed in 1978 to win the Triple Crown. And joining us right now, we are pleased to be joined by a person who has contributed to our site more than anybody else outside of the founders. He's our horse racing expert, our golf expert. He's written about football as well, but horse racing is his thing. Michael Riley joining us right now on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. And first of all, Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Uh, California Chrome, of course, he's going to be the big story of the weekend. He is the big story right now, a chance to uh, break the 36-year hex that's currently above horse racing, the cloud above horse racing. Um, I know he was the horse at the very beginning, even before the Kentucky Derby started. He was the horse that a lot of people were concentrating on. I know you had your doubts even before uh, the Kentucky Derby. How surprised are you that California Chrome is one step away from possibly uh, winning the Triple Crown? I'm very surprised, um, to be honest with you. Um, I felt that he was fast out in California, and I thought he had so many obstacles to overcome to be one of these um, horses really coming out of nowhere with a, uh, you know, the owners, um, they own one horse, and this is it, you know, and they bred him for very cheap, uh, around $10,000 it cost them to breed this horse. And um, although he did look impressive out west, I didn't feel he had what it took to come out east and beat the best um, from New York and Florida and Kentucky and um, win the Kentucky Derby even, and he sure did, and he ran away from them at the end. So I was very surprised, and I still am. And now, after watching the Preakness, did you come away from the Preakness thinking that he has a pretty good chance, that there's still a whole lot of doubt? So after the Preakness, what were your thoughts on him? Well, I thought he ran very well in the Preakness. He did what I would consider, um, you know, in kind of classic, you know, journalist sense, um, a workmanlike race. He, he just got he got up in time. He did the job. They didn't ask him for too much, and um, that was the key because you come back after the Kentucky Derby in two weeks, and the Kentucky Derby is the hardest race that horse has any horse has ever run in their life up until that point. And the trainer didn't even work him out in those two weeks, so he just let him do his thing, relax jog him around the track, um, keep him calm and happy, and um, he got the job done. And now he had three weeks to come to Belmont. So in all honesty, I feel that his chances, um, in my opinion, he's improved his chances of winning the Triple Crown. Now, do I think he's going to do it? It's the hardest thing to do in sports, you could argue. I can't predict that accurately, but he did look good. Uh, once again, talking with Michael Rowley, our horse racing expert on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. He has been drawn California Chrome 
in the number two position. Your thoughts on the number two position. Um, and I believe the uh, statistic is no uh, horse in the Belmont Stakes has won from the number two position in 20 years. So, wow. um, uh, your thoughts on drawing the number two position, positive, negative, indifferent? I, I'm I'm slightly indifferent, and, and the reason why is um if, if as long as you're relatively inside inside you know there's 11 horses going, which by the way um when Seattle Slough and Affirmed and Secretariat and those horses went for their Triple Crown challenge, they didn't um and, you know and Affirmed I think had seven challengers maybe, so this is like the, the and, and since then there's never been ten other challengers I believe um, going against um, a potential Triple Crown, so there's some horses on his outside, but he has good speed. There's a fairly long run into the first turn so if he can use his natural speed a little bit to get position i think he'll be okay i don't think the two posts would really affect him it's a pretty fair track as long as you break cleanly and don't get shut off going into the turn but i don't think it's going to affect him once again talking with michael rowley our horse racing expert on a lot of sports talk uh dot com i want to ask you a question since you've been to so many uh horse races for triple crown races or non-triple crown races how many times have you been to uh, belmont park for the belmont stakes um i've probably lost count but i'm going <laughs> to guess somewhere around the 25 to 30 range the only time i've missed it was when I lived in um, since you know the, the, the late '80s, early '90s, um, and a few times before that I've been there when I was a child. But the only time I missed it was when I lived in Hollywood for three years. So I'm going to guess about 25 times. What are your memories of Belmont Park? At least well, the Belmont I, Stakes. I love Belmont Park. Um, one of my favorite memories, and um, I think I can talk a little bit about the, the, the I think the way the race is going to unfold. Hopefully, oh, yeah. as long as we have a dry track, um, was when Smarty Jones ran in the. Um, Belmont Stakes. He had won. He had been undefeated up until the Preakness Stakes, and um, he was entered as a favorite to win the Triple Crown. And um, there was about 125,000 people there. And Marty Jones had Philadelphia connections, and I, I swear, everyone from Philadelphia who was a horse racing fan or a sports fan hopped on that Amtrak and, or somehow got here to to Belmont Park, and it was so crowded. It was. I think people said it was the largest um, sporting event ever. You know, in terms of attendance, ever in the state of New York. And it was just the, the buzz and the energy. Everyone was rooting for Smarty to win, and the crowd gets so loud. They bring the horses right in front of the stands to start at Belmont Park because you have to go around one complete lap of the mile-and-a-half oval, which is the largest track of its kind in North America. So they, they load the horses right in front of the stands, and the 120,000 people just were shaking the building. It was, it was almost like one of those Seahawks 12th man moments or whatever. It was just sonically beautiful and powerful and moving and then in that race of course smarty jones he's the favorite he's was dominant and then it was birdstone uh that ended up uh coming in and uh shocking everybody how was that buzz at the end of that race was it quiet uh, just how was it when birdstone hit the uh finish line first well, just just as just as I said, it was so loud when the when the horses were loaded into the gate, and then and then they spring the gate open, and the horses jump out, and the roar gets even louder. There was a gasp, almost that loud, when Birdstone just went sailing past Smarty Jones um, in, in advance of the wire. They maybe had a furlong to go, and you could just tell that Smarty had nothing left, and Birdstone was really taking a loving to the track. And that's why I said we're not sure about this weather. If it keeps raining like this, I think they're calling for sunny and actually cool and clear skies on um, Saturday. But uh, that was a wet track, and uh, that affects that affects the Belmont. When these horses have never run a mile and a half in their life, and most of them never will again. Mm. And um, a sloppy track going around that that big sandy, as they call it, just seemed to take its toll on some of these champions. It's it's an, it's an amazing race. It's I recommend everyone go. Again, talk with Michael Rowley. What is the meaning? 
to most sports fans, to casual sports fans, if California Chrome were to complete uh, the Triple Crown, do you expect to see a boon of casual fans becoming more interested in horse racing and maybe possibly to the Breeders' Cup? Or will the Triple Crown not make too much of a difference if it's won? So if in the event, if you can project that California Chrome were to win the Triple Crown and win the Belmont Stakes, what does it mean to the sport, to the sports fans at large in America? Well, I think, um, obviously, it's going to have some buzz come Saturday. There's going to be a lot of people watching it. Um, so, the, you know, the numbers are going to be up on Saturday. Um, television, I'm sure some people are going to pick up newspapers and read articles about it and talk about it. I've already heard discussion about it here. In the long term, I'm not, I'm not certain because it's been so long since we've had a Triple Crown winner. And if you look back in the 70s, we had Secretariat in 72. Then we had um, uh, Seattle Slough in 77 and um, at Farmed in 78. So we had three Triple Crown winners, and then in 79, Spectacular Bid comes along, and he looks like a fourth Triple Crown winner, literally in, you know, out of a 10-year period. And he unfortunately did not win as the favorite, as a 3-5 to five favorite, I believe, as California Chrome is predicted to be. So my point is, we haven't seen it in a long time. I would like to think that some casual fans would take a liking to it, and I think maybe a lot of people will be following California Chrome throughout his career. So should he stick around and stay healthy and win the Triple Crown uh, and come back and run in the Breeders' Cup and run in the major races as an older horse next year, he will certainly have a legion of fans following him. Um, will, it, will it change the overall landscape of horse racing? That's yet to be seen. Um, I would have thought that the mystique of the Triple Crown not being pulled off for so long will help uh, the sport's popularity compared to what you were talking about, uh, three Triple Crown winners in the same decade mm -hmm. um, in the 1970s. So what you're saying is maybe the mystique may not help it as much as what a lot of people may think on the surface in terms of if California Chrome were to pull off the trick and then have more people be interested in the sport. Well, I mean, again, we have yet to see it. It's one of those things, like, I'm looking back, and I actually re remember now I just said 1972. Secretary was in 1973. Let me yeah. correct myself. No problem. Um, you got it. But, um, uh, you know, every every time this happens, when, like, uh, whether Big Brown or Smarty Jones or, um, in the case of uh, Real Quiet, one of these horses that wins two of the three in the last 20 years, that it's, it, again, we all feel like this is going to happen. It's, it's so hard to say. I really, I, I would love for it to happen. I, you know, I'm kind of be rooting for him. Am I going to be betting on him, that's hard to say. I have to wait until they get at the, get at the starting gate and it's post-time to determine who I'm going to bet sometimes. But I'm going to root for him for the industry. Um, that's a tough question. You know, We just don't know. Once again, talking with Michael Riley, our horse racing expert on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. And you have told me before that you're such a big horse racing fan, yet, I shouldn't say yet, but you're also uh, an animal lover and you are a champion of animal rights. Um, some people may think, uh, knowing that, that that may not mix with horse racing and being an animal rights uh, activist, uh, if you will. So how does that mix? Well, I will say this, and in light of the recent, um, there was an undercover investigation that was in the New York Times, it was re revealed in the New York Times that PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, had an undercover investigator following um, behind the scenes in the backstretch of, the, of a prominent trainer, and it uncovered some, um, some of the darker aspects of the sport. Um, now, that it was so, in my opinion, that one instance was so rare and so isolated that it speaks to the bigger question, and that is, how much do these people really love the animals? And 
from my experience, literally growing up around races, around horse racing, around the thoroughbred racing industry, I can tell you that these animals are so well cared for and loved by 99.9% of their owners, trainers, grooms, jockeys, and other horsemen and women. And um, I see it as not a conflict whatsoever because... Uh, these animals love to run. They get treated very well. They're fed. They're handled. They're they're groomed and walked and you know bathed daily. And I don't see it as any kind of conflict whatsoever. And I have a tough time explaining that, I believe. But I just know in my heart that these animals are well cared for and uh, they're they're happy. They they want to run and they love it. Uh, I do thank you for that perspective because I know uh, some people may say that uh, may conflict. Uh, it has been a pleasure to talk horse racing with a person who knows the ins and outs of uh, horse racing, has been a follower of horse racing uh, for the longest time, Michael Riley. Uh, look out for his article in the next couple of days on some terminologies that uh, most people use that originate uh, in horse racing and or horse racing terms that are used in terminology outside of horse racing. That will be on alotofsportstalk.com in the next couple of days. And we'll also have uh, Michael Riley's preview of the Belmont Stakes, which will take place on Saturday just after 6 o'clock at Belmont Park in New York. Michael Riley, thank you so very much for joining us. And we can't wait to talk with you down the road. We can't wait uh, for your stories. And uh, we also can't wait uh, for uh, your betting tips uh, going into Saturday. So we'll be waiting for that. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Now, how awesome would it be if California Crown were to be able to complete the Triple Crown Quest? Our sincere thanks to Michael Riley talking about California Chrome and the 2014 Belmont Stakes and other issues in horse racing as well. And we also thank Becky Hammond and Mike Lynch providing their insight on the spurs and the heat and other topics in the game of basketball. So that's our show for this week. Next week will be devoted all to soccer. Ole, ole, ole. The 2014 FIFA World Cup begins next Thursday in Brazil. The host country, Brazil, will host Croatia in the first game of the 2014 FIFA World Cup, inarguably the most anticipated sporting event in the world. And we will have all angles covered next week in our podcast about the 2014 FIFA World Cup. So that's next week, and we do hope that you tune in next week. And until then, uh, keep tuning in to our website and logging on to our website, www.alotsofsportstalk.com. We have a couple of new stories up, including a story by Michael A. Riley about some horse racing terminology that's in the regular vernacular uh, with a lot of people in America. So we have a little glossary, a little bit of a reference point about horse racing terminology that a lot of people use, photo finish, and some other things like that. So he provides a little bit of a glossary for us. That's one of our new articles next week, as a lot of talk this weekend will be about horse racing, and we have horse racing covered and a lot of sports covered, as you can tell. So until then, have yourself a great weekend and a great week, and we hope and we will see you next week. Right? Gotcha. All right. You take care. Bye-bye.